guys to season two episode 18 of the bolt from the blue podcast with uh, me mike long aka bolt from the blue and uh, three guesses who we've got in the skype studio with us yeah you guessed it we've got first of all mr colin savage how are you doing colin good evening i'm good thank you uh uh-huh. is have you been watching any um, american sports that you can tell us about I've been watching a bit of uh, baseball. It's coming to the climax of the season. The World Series and the Houston Astros will be taking on the um, Washington Nationals. And, and I think the Nationals are a, a bit of a surprise inclusion. I don't think they won their league, actually. Uh, they were one of the wildcard teams. Yeah, and um, no, Pittsburgh Steelers have a weekend off, so I've not really watched much NFL. Well, there you go. And also, we have with us Ray Bubbles from the City Fan TV channel on YouTube. How are you doing, Ray? Hey, Mike and uh, Colin. I'm doing very, very well. Uh, Just been uh, for a long weekend in London after the Palace game, and I rolled in at 21.59 for a 2200 podcast. Uh, Call that timing or what? Um, you know, if, if Gabby Jesus can take a leaf out of my book, he won't be offside so much. But that's another story. <laughs> well, Colin, the last time we spoke to you, you were saying that you had two um, City Matters meetings lined up. You remember that? And, yeah, um, yeah. I, just, I know it's all members-only stuff, I guess, but um, anything that, that you can reveal or or is it all behind closed doors? No, um, it was actually... Um relatively uncontentious meetings actually uh, we were talking about where the ticketing system is going and some of the things they want to do which includes mobile ticketing and one or two other things i've got to keep under wraps which will be interesting see the reaction to those we talked about the structure of the of the kind of whole setup and how we how we work it's taken us a year really to 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 get things into a into a pattern really you know to get a structure and pattern together which um, was probably par for the course. And we also talked about, um, we had a good presentation on some of the technology partners. You know, City, I can't remember what they called it, but they had this competition for startups who felt they could improve the whole kind of ethos of, of, of the club in, in terms of match day and some of the things going on behind the scenes. So I think we've got about eight or nine, working with about eight or nine partners on various things. Of course, the, the most high profile one was the facial recognition one, which has been ditched because the company didn't stick to its agreements on confidentiality. So obviously I've got to be a bit careful what I say, but um, yeah, some very interesting stuff going on. Well, no doubt you'll keep us uh, up to date with any developments that can be disclosed to the public, but uh, let's let's go over to Ray. And Ray, you know, you had this uh, trip down to Crystal Palace. Tell us all about your, your trip and, and how it went. Pretty standard. I went with the kids on Friday night because timing was perfect. School holidays uh, started 
Friday um, evening. They have some holidays. So we went down as a family to London. They'll spend a few days uh, seeing the sights, which they regularly do. Yeah, so the trip to, to Palace was uneventful. It was a few of us. I wasn't the only one. Took a risk not taking a coat or a jacket. And a couple of hours, two and a half hours, three hours before kickoff, you could see the rain pelting down and the wind blowing. And you thought this was a bad choice. But actually... When I, when I arrived at uh, Norwood Junction, I think it was, for my 10 or 12 minute walk to, to the Sellers Park, it was bright sunshine, uh, very nice, very pleasant. Probably one of the last opportunities we're going to get to go. I, I normally wear a city kit of uh, one de- description or another. Um, so, yeah, it's probably one of the last opportunities to go jacketless until probably um, well into March or even April. Now, to so, be fair, Ray, you were, you were wearing that pink city top with a Man City baseball cap. I did see that. Yeah, you could see that. Well, I wore the baseball cap just in case. That was my, just in case it gets cold. That's all I had. My, I asked my lad to pack um, a city scarf for me in, in his stuff when we were going down um, and he forgot to do it. So, yeah, it would have been nice to wear, have a scarf as well just in case it got a bit nippy. But Palace... I've got to say, it's a few years since I've been to, for one reason or another, besides living in France for eight or nine years, so it's been a long time. But it's a nice, you know, the view is horrible. I've got to say that. But apart from that, it's a nice trip. I, I, I used to find it more difficult. It probably helped that I was in, we were staying in um, in London as it, uh, anyway, so the trip was only for me um, about 20, 25 minutes, so it wasn't so bad. But it used to be a devil of a place to get to. But it's very tight, packed in the away end. And actually on the concourse and outside while you're getting drinks and food and whatever, they, they have a DJ and he was really banging out some tunes. And, you know, so you got all these city fans and it felt quite, quite different. It felt like a club night. You, you know, people are like jigging away and dancing away a little bit. I certainly was uh, to the music. And um, it was a very nice atmosphere. The stewards were generally very, very nice and helpful. And they kind of understood our plight because the view if anybody's been to Sellers Park, the view from the away fans, when you understand, it's pretty yeah, dire. From, from what I saw on your uh, updates, no, it wasn't two big pillars sort of ob- obstructing the view and you could only see about three quarters of the pitch from what I saw. Well, you've got two big pillars and then you've got the gantry where all the media and, and everybody uh, sit. So that's hanging down from the, it's kind of hanging down from the stand. So even I think Sam Lee put out a picture to to get, show his view and he had a terrible view and he was in the gantry so he had a better view than we did and one of the pictures I put out before the game was when uh, I was just sat sat in my seat where, an hour before the kickoff it was not so bad but that doesn't take into account the fact that you're going to have thousands of football fans who are not going to sit down during a game so once everybody's standing up you know you can't see you can see precious, precious little so you have, you know, as moves were going on, you're trying to stand, you know, short guy like me, you're trying to stand on your tippy toes, crane your neck one way or the other, people standing in the walkways and, and everywhere to get a better view because I, I'm, I'm going to say this, I think it's wrong in this day and age that so many fans, basically, you, you can only see half the, half the game. And it's probably no wonder I, went, um, I had to go to the uh, facilities, uh, which is unlike me. I, I never want to go during a game. But I had to. And there were hundreds, literally hundreds of City fans finishing their drinks uh, 20 minutes into the game. Because, I mean, you know, you really couldn't see much at all. So uh, I think they just it's one of those weird days. Have a good time. Don't worry about what's going on the pitch kind of thing because you can't see from the stand. And it's one of the only grounds, I mean, Colin might know, know better than me, that have TV screens in the stands. <laughs> 
little monitors in the stand so you can actually follow the game. Um, and you can see contentious uh, moments like VAR decisions not given on penalties. You can actually see them. Well, we will we will get on to that. But um, usually it's not an advantage only being able to see uh, half the picture because that's uh, pretty much where we play in most games. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, if you're looking, I've, I've, been to, I've been to Palace uh, when I lived down in London. And uh, I don't remember the screens uh, in the stands, but I think they were... Doing something to that stand when when we were there. I don't think there were televisions back in those days, Sam. No, no, no. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, you, you better watch out, um, Mike. You'll get his glove and uh, slap it across your face. <laughs> well, listen. And, and ask you for a. Listen, Colin. Um, I'm used to it. <laughs> we've all got our private in jokes. We've all got our private in jokes. But um, Colin, a lot of people were saying that this was not the particularly the game that we wanted after that um, that period uh, just before the international break, because obviously you know it was a couple of damaging defeats and uh, Crystal Palace. We all knew were going to be very tough to break down. Going to be very very physical. How did that first half uh, unfold for you? Yeah, I mean, I was nervous about the game, I must admit, considering um, our performance against Wolves, Crystal Palace, Roy Hodgson uh, seem in some ways to have the measure of us. I mean, they were described as our bogus team, which is a bit of nonsense because um, we've beaten them far, far more times than they've beaten us. But of course, we've, uh, they, you know, they beat us at home and uh, we had a nil-nil draw there a couple of seasons ago and um, and they were on a bit of a roll. I mean, they could have overtaken us, couldn't they, if they'd beaten us? Uh, it certainly wasn't um, an enticing proposition. There were games you would have wanted more than Crystal Palace. But that first half, we were... Obviously, we, we had a point. To, I think we had a point to prove when we came. We played like we had a point to prove. We absolutely swarmed all over Palace. I think the only surprise, as other other people better qualified than me have said, was it took so long to get a goal. I was kind of getting a bit worried because you know you think, well, you know, the longer it goes on, the more chance of them getting something on the break. Our performance in that first half was uh, exceptional. Just I don't think Palace had a serious attempt at our goal, did they? That's true. And also, Ray, the, all the talk before the game was, as you could predict, about the lineup. Let me just read it out to you guys. So we had Ederson, Cancelo, Fernandinho, Rodri, Mendy, De Bruyne, Gundogan, David Silva, Bernardo Silva, Gabby J, and Sterling. And, um, yeah, there were some, um, fans got very hot under the collar by the fact that we had two central defenders on the bench and, uh, Pep had, well, Pep does what what Pep does, and 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 pick two central midfielders in there. What did you think of that? Well, I mean, talking to fans and obviously looking at that lineup, we were bemused, laughing, nervously as well. Because look, as Colin has said, Palace are doing well this season. There were six in the table. They'd only let in eight goals in eight games. Four of them are in one game. So, uh, as I said before the game, they're pretty miserly at the back. If you take that one thrashing out. They've let seven goals in four games. And their stall was simply going to be, we're going to defend and we're going to hit you on the break. We're going to rely on people like Zaha. And a bit of a surprise, they had Townsend and Ben Tenkey on the bench. thought they'd really have a go at us. But they, they're, their stall was basically, we're going to put everybody behind the ball and try and get you with Jordan Ayew and, and Zaha on the break or at a free kick or something. So that lineup, I mean, I think my predicted lineup only had five or six of those players. So I, I wasn't the only one who was surprised, to say the least, especially when you had John Stones and Eric Garcia on the bench. To not have a recognised centre-back on the pitch was a bit surprising. But 
you've got to step back. You've got to step back and, and look at it and say, well, Fernandinho's basically been training as a, a centre back since the start, uh, even before the start of the season. That's his. That was going to be his new position. Once we weren't buying a new centre back, that was his going to be his job, and that's what he was. He's been training now. We've, we've also, uh, hopefully all seen the reports that that's what he was doing. And ha- having Rodri at the back, I mean, we, we were wondering could he could he actually do it? Did you hear how Suggest- long how long Rodri's been training for that role? A few, uh, one day, three days. One day. Yeah, you got two or three days. But as uh, someone, uh, Gary said it to me after the game. Uh, he said since he's been the age of ten, so I think the, the people have commented that he's got such awareness. Uh, he can basically play anywhere on the pitch. Um, and, and there were some people, cleverer people than than I, who suggested that Rodri play at centre back. That would be me, Ray. Uh, that would be me. No, no names mentioned. I, I want to keep you humble. Mike. It was me. It was me. <laughs> keep that humility. That's one of your best points. That humility, Mike. <laughs> um, and uh, but no, look. I, I, when I step back, I said on one of my on one of my streams, you step back and think to yourself, Palace are going to play with so many men behind the ball. City are going to have at least five seventy percent or more possession. How much pressure are our centre defenders likely to be under? And I, I look back at last season and the season before, and look at our left back situation. We played with Fabian Delph and Oleg Zinchenko at left back. We played with Gundogan at uh, defensive midfield, and I don't think any of them are really perfect for those positions. But because we have so much possession, they're not really called on that much, and, if, and they might not be called on at all. So to have Rodri and Fernandinho, whose normal roles as a holding on defensive midfielder would be to get the ball and pass it around long and short uh, with accuracy and, and decisive balls, to have them in, in, in centre-back was actually, you could look at it as a masterstroke because we start our attacks a little bit earlier, and if you're asking me who would you, I'd be more convinced about about starting um, the passing process and coming out of, with the ball, would it be Rodri and Fernandinho or Stones and Garcia? Well, actually, I'd be more confident with Rodri and Fernandinho. So I, one of my quotes was, it's either going to be a masterclass or a disaster class. So Pep's neck is on the line. He's taken a bit of a risk. But when you stand back and you actually watched how the game developed, you think, well, it's not actually that much of a risk after all because Fernandinho's played a few games at centre-back and he's played really, really well. So, yeah, it was a pet masterclass at the end of the day. Well, what was interesting for me was that obviously you got Fernandinho and Rodri at the back, but what I'd love to have seen is, um, because you get the cameras focusing on where they tend to where the ball is, I'd love to have seen a view of the whole pitch because I think what you were, what I noticed a few times was that Rodri or Fernandinho, I think mainly Rodri, would step up into midfield when necessary. And it was interesting because I'm going to get the age jokes again, I know. But when I started watching football, the, the formation was was what's known as the WM formation, where you'd have two fullbacks, three halfbacks, two inside forwards and three forwards. And you can read all, all about this in the book Inverting the Pyramid by uh, Jonathan exactly. Wilson. John, Jonathan Wilson. And, and eventually that the centre half, who was a halfback, dropped in between the two fullbacks. It's very interesting because the numbering, why a centre-half got number five instead of what it should have been, number three, is because the numbering was insisted on by the FA as the two full-backs were two and three, the three half-backs were four, five and six. So when the centre-half dropped into the back line, uh, they wouldn't change the number. So the centre-half was always number five. So, so basically what I'm saying is you had two, two defenders, two full-backs with a centre-half, centre-back in the middle, 
You had two guys in midfield, two halfbacks in midfield. You had two inside forwards, and then you had three forwards, you know, one centre forward, two wide. And when Rodri stepped up into midfield, that's what we had. So it was like Pep's could sort of reinventing 1960s football. <laughs> so he's going backwards. It was, but you're right, Colin. It was very interesting. You saw at times, because we had so much possession, that at times both of them were playing well into the yep. um, Crystal Palace half uh, as midfielders. So, and, and you're right. Yeah. So it, in fact, in fact, the two fullbacks with the original two fullbacks of the 1920s or whatever. Yeah. And then and the thing was that it was Fernandinho playing slightly behind Rodri, which was interesting to know. And look, when Fernandinho was asked, you know, tested for his pace, he certainly delivered in that. In that, <laughs> uh, that, that was half. incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hang on, mate. Where have you got, the, where have you got that speed from? Because... I- I remember Richard Dunn doing something similar. And you think, where the hell did that come from? Another slightly surprising thing for for some people was, of course, there was no Zinchenko in the, in the squad, and uh, well, he's busy, you know, proposing to his girlfriend, I guess. And uh, and uh, we had Angelino on the bench, but uh, Pep went for Mendy, and uh, I'd be interested in what you thought of of his showing in this particular game, uh, Ray. What do you think? Um, I think when when we did our on my channel, we did our ratings yesterday. I think Mendy got, I think he got a seven. I think he's crossing, since he's been back this season, he's crossing, which I thought was one of his strongest points. For me, he's been a letdown. He's been under-hitting crosses, over-hitting crosses, Kevin De Bruyne-esque kind of crosses that we would haven't been. His attacking threat, I think, was was dented by his, his poor crosses. Although, obviously, he he moved up very quickly to help us with the second goal. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. So, for me, I think it was an average performance. Slightly above average, maybe. Uh, but nothing really special. When I compare him to the Mendy that we saw last season and the season before, in the bits and pieces we saw, he was creating so many chances, so many assists he got last season in the first few games of the season. I'm not sure if he's been gingerly, you know, putting crosses in. But the the way off target, I think he's got a long way to go from this showing um, so far this season to get back to the levels he was in the past. But look, you can argue that's that's only to be expected since he's missed most of the last two seasons and he's just getting back into it. But hey, Colin, who needs defenders when you've got Raheem Sterling? Yeah, well, I mean, that was it, wasn't it? I mean, because... Um... Everyone defended, didn't they? You, know, you, you saw Kevin De Bruyne pop up at fullback, and you saw Raheem Sterling pop up at fullback, and uh, you know Gabriel Jesus defends from the front. You know, unlike Aguero, David Silva was always there to stick a leg out. Uh, and I think it was a what it was was a really good team performance because knowing that we were a bit light at the back, everyone else chipped in to help out. And uh, Ray, I think it was um, match of the day who singled out uh, David Silva. His performance in this game, he was pretty much rolling back the years there, wasn't he? Well, look, I mean, I, I, I think people have been harsh with their criticism of David Silver over the last two seasons. And um, I've maintained that he's still performing at a very high level. Uh, last season, uh, especially so, I, I think, the, I, I think as, from what I remember last season, the first half of the season, I think David Silver was brilliant. Um, especially in the absence of KDB. And I think he also had to play more games than uh, Pep would have liked because of the absence of KDB. And the second half of the season, I don't think he was as good as the first half, but maybe some of that is down to tiredness or whatever. Um, the fact is, Pep wanted David Silva to sign a new contract, um, an extension for another 12 months. Um, and he's 33 years old. 
you know, that's how highly Pep regards and views David Silva and to, to want him to stay uh, longer than his current contract. So for me, he's still playing at a, a very, very high level. Uh, I love it when it's when David Silva plays with KDB and the offer is something different. Um, and and K, KDB's drive and determination and aggression and the crosses he puts in uh, kind of dovetails with David Silva's daintiness. And but he's got a little bit of a you know a tough streak to him as well. We saw with some of the tackling he put on on Saturday evening. Uh, but they play really well together. So for me, uh, you, you say rolling back the years. I just think extending what he's been doing uh, for so many years ever since he joined City. Uh, Colin Savage, another feature from this game seems to be uh, that surely the debate about who's the better goalkeeper between Allison and Ederson is is at an end now, you would think, because some of those saves were just ridiculous. And this is the guy who's basically, you know, credited for his distribution skills, but he's really beginning to show now that he's a little bit more than just that, isn't he? Well, I mean, this is what we've said all along, that actually he doesn't get that much practice, does he? And then, you know, a couple of times in the past, he's let us down. He's, you know, he's been a bit rash flying out. But we, we know that his distribution is better than most midfielders. But I think he showed, well, he proved on Saturday that he is an excellent goalkeeper. You know, when people, people talk about David De Gea being the best goalkeeper in the world. Well, I mean, he gets more practice than Edison does, of course, um, behind United's defence. But but Edison showed, I mean, we had two really, really wonderful saves. And that one from Benteke was just absolutely sensational. Yeah. It was indeed. And um, Ray, uh, what about Cancelo for you? Um, how did he look and how is how is he progressing in Pep's system? Well, it's, look, he's it's first away start. So obviously that's, as Pep said in the press conference, it's difficult, um, you know, away from the Etihad. Uh, I think he did all right. Um, I think... Palace didn't offer much. Um, he, he defended generally well against uh, Zaha when Zaha was there, uh, had opportunities. Zaha was basically quite impotent um, during during that game. Um, and so Cancelo, I think he did all right. Um, but you need to see what he's like uh, when, when he is severely tested because going forwards, you know, we had beautiful uh, triangles between Bernardo Silva, Cancelo, KDB. They were kind of interchanging. You know, as you said, KDB might drop into the right back slot while Cancelo's bombing down the wing. We saw that. I remember seeing that at Watford when Walker was bombing down the wing. You have KDB at right back. So they've got this this ability to interchange positions and obviously cover for each other when needs be. So I think we had a lot of uh, joy down our right-hand side and obviously Cancelo was a big part of that. Um, but I think for me, the test is going to come when he has to defend uh, a little bit more uh, when the team's offering a little bit more than Palace offered against City. But hey, can't take anything away from him. He did uh, he did a decent job. He did what he had to do. And he showed us that as an attacking force, um, we've got a lot to look forward to with him, um, Mares, Bernardo Silva and KDB on the right-hand side. And uh, you just mentioned Bernardo Silva there, uh, Colin. Uh, Bernardo has been copping some flack for uh, a drop-off in his performances as compared with uh, last season, but he looks to be getting back to his scintillating best, I thought, in this game. Very prominent, I, uh, I thought. Well, I thought it was a better performance. I'm not sure I'd agree. I'd use the words back to his scintillating best, but yeah, definitely a step in the right direction on Saturday. 
I think he was he was quietly effective, not in a spectacular way, but of course a great cross for the first goal. And um, yeah, you know, I, I still think he's got a little way to go to get back to the form of last season. But yeah, I was happy enough with his performance on Saturday. Well, guys, it was quite frustrating how long it took to. Uh, get the first goal, but a little bit like uh, London buses, as they say, uh, that two came along very, very quickly. I think just within uh, a minute or two of each other. Uh, Ray, talk us through that first one. Uh, the first goal. The first uh, goal. Well, 39th first minute it was. Yeah. 39th minute. The ball got played obviously out to Bernardo Silva. He was on the right hand side. He cuts in. You had David Silva, uh, who'd uh, stolen a match towards uh, the uh, the box. And he uh, started running into the box at a diagonal, which took uh, the defender who was nearest to um, uh, Gabby Jesus away from Gabby Jesus. That created the space, uh, and Gabby Jesus was just basically left standing on his own. Um, cross came in, and um, I it, it looked a bit odd where we was um, in, in this from the stands because obviously we didn't have a great view. But it, it didn't look like he headed it, actually. It didn't look like he hit it cleanly. And we saw it bobble towards the, the post. And it hit the post. And at that point, we didn't really see what was going on. Uh, fans were jumping up and down trying to watch. And the, the ball uh, bobbled in. Wayne Hennessy just watched it as well. And I think on the replays, did he hit, hit his shoulder and went in? Which kind of, I think he was aiming for the other corner with his head. And it just... Uh, hit his shoulder and went um, carried on in, in kind of in, in, on, on on its original path. I think the defender was flummoxed by that because he was diving across. I think to block uh, the, uh, where he thought uh, Gabby Jesus, Jesus was going to head it. But hey, whether it hits your head plumb, whether it hits your bum, as long as it goes in, it doesn't matter. So it was it was in the right position at the right time, uh, and he got enough of a connection. And whether, as I said, whether it's good or bad, the connection, it, as long as the ball ends up in the net, it, who cares? As a uh, a certain uh, Ballon d'Or uh, possibility you used to say, "Who cares?" And I was, uh, I was just a little bit nervous at that before uh, the goal was announced because there is a little bit of a dispute, isn't there, about how much of the the arm um, includes the shoulder? But um, luckily enough, it was given, and uh, just a couple of minutes later, lovely bit of skill leads to the second goal, Colin. Oh, it was lovely, wasn't it? I mean, the ball was. Uh, it was a city break, and earlier in the game, what was made me nervous? I think earlier in the game we had a, f- a four-man break, um, which we normally you'd expect us to at least threaten the goal. But the ball somehow ended up with Ederson. So this time we had a three-man break, and um, the ball ran to. Fortunately, Mendy let Sterling take it off him. And the, the ball sort of ran a little bit away from Mendy. Uh, Sterling came in. Looked as though the chance had gone, of course, but David Silva went steaming through the lines. Raheem Sterling saw him and played this perfect little chip. I mean, it was just absolutely perfect. He fell onto his foot at the in the right place at the right time. And and, and Silva, who is not really noted for his um, great goal scoring record, just took it absolutely perfectly. You know, it, the, the concentration he showed watching that ball come to him, and he put it. You know, strikers always say. One of the places to put it is between the goalkeeper's legs or either side of his chest, because that's, that, those are the most difficult places for the goalkeeper to um, get the ball. And he put it right between Wayne Ennis's legs. And, and to be honest, it surprised me, because you don't really think of David Silver as being a guy who is uh, has the, always has the killer instinct in front of goal. 
But it was absolutely, it, it, you know, I, you know, I've used this analogy before, but it should be uh, put in a frame and stuck on a wall in the Louvre Gallery or the <laughs> National Gallery. Brilliant. No, I, I mean, I, I'll go back a little bit early into the move because I think the, obviously Palace were, uh, were were trying to exert a little bit of pressure. We got the the ball was knocked out to David to David Silva, who was in midfield. And he did a first-time pass back to KDB, I think. And then KDB just bombed uh, forward um, through the heart of the, the the middle of the pitch, knocked it out wide on the right to Gabby J. And um, we had Sterling on the left. Silva was by now coming up uh, through the middle. And I think he had his hand raised because he wanted the ball. But, but um, Ben Mendy was a little bit faster and, and had an earlier start. He was a little bit further forward and the ball was passed across the pitch to, to Mendy. He took a touch. Raheem took it off him. David Silva. So David Silva, who basically started this uh, this move halfway inside our own half, he'd carried on going. Now, what I noticed was that basically we, when we were attacking, Palace had enough defenders when we started that move. They had enough defenders, but not only one. there was only one person who was really sprinting and busting a gut to get back. The others were just letting, um, were probably just thinking, yeah, we've got enough men to deal with this. Whereas we were still putting, uh, players were coming forward. And uh, in, instead of, you know, at one point they were at, Palace were outnumbering us. By the end, you know, when David Silva actually had his shot, we were probably at six people up there against their six guys at the back. So I think they, they you know, probably were a bit lackadaisically not, um, chasing back harder because I mean you know David Silva's no uh, limpid Christie he's you know he's not a, a guy uh, uh, who's got a lot of pace um, and so I think the, the the Palace couple of them should have at least tried to keep up with him and, and go back but hey you know uh, let, let's not worry about what th- their uh, mi- uh, mistakes it was a cracking finish as Colin has said eye on the ball didn't even look at the keeper and it was just basically keep your eye on that ball hit it down uh, and then it's kind of hope for the best. And but he hits it in the right place, uh, cracking goal. It was probably only about 30, 40 seconds uh, after kickoff. And um, yeah, it, at that point, the away end went absolutely mental. The first, the first goal was like a relief, and the second goal we could let it really all, all out. Um, and it was, you know, it was just so quickly after, so soon after the first goal. Yeah, we were going mental uh, at that second goal. And we, we kind of felt realistically that probably was game over at that point. As long as we were sensible in the second half, it would have been game over. There were there were actually, though, there was a little cause for frustration after the second goal, wasn't there, guys? Because there were, as I re- recall, there were two pretty much guilt-ed chances that were passed up by Gabby Jay and, uh, and Raheem Sterling. Sterling sometimes just gives you that little bit of frustration because you know his ceiling, you know what he can do, but he, he can miss um, pretty, pretty good chances, can't he, Colin? Uh, yeah, and I think there were two in that game, weren't there, that he uh, missed. One where he completely miscued, and another where he um, didn't quite catch the ball and put it wide. But, I mean, you, you can't knock him because he worked so hard in that game. I mean, he gives his all, and he was always involved. But, that, yeah, there was some frustration. It seemed to be like the old Raheem Sterling had, had suddenly made a, an, an, um, a guest appearance in, in that game in terms of his finishing. Yeah, moving into the uh, second half, uh, Ray, uh, I think it was a line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, to award a penalty or not to award a penalty. 
Um, that push on Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, just what on earth is going on here? Yeah, it was. It was. It felt ridiculous at the time. We were, uh, uh, I think, it was at our end uh, where the uh, away fans were, and it just looked. It looked a penalty all day long, all day long, and we had the monitors as well. So we, you know, as I said earlier, the contentious incidents that you would not see at um, on the big screens at other grounds, you could actually watch it because it was it was the feed from I think from the TV feed uh, or, or the Sky feed or whatever it was, and so we could actually see that again. And so you know, it just uh, confirmed our belief that it was a blatant penalty. I th- look. Did KDB go down slightly easily? Possibly, you can argue. But he was pushed. Zaha pushed him. He impeded him. Uh, he knocked him down. And it was a penalty all day long. But as soon as the referee didn't give it, we knew uh, as night follows day, we were not going to get that. Didn't matter how blatant and how obvious and how clear a penalty it was. There's no way uh, that these officials, who I believe are corrupt in the game, I'm not calling them corrupt themselves, but they're corrupting the game of football with the way they're implementing the rules. Uh, Mike Riley, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to keep it pleasant, but, um, you know, Mike Riley does those ball men a disservice because he's he's pretty poor with this idea that he doesn't want. It's, it's, it's ludicrous, okay? Why do we have to be out of step with the rest of the world? Why can't our referees uh, look at the monitors? And once you start looking at the monitors... The game will speed up. Mike Riley's pretty pathetic argument is that it will uh, slow the game down. Um, I'd rather have a slightly slow, you know, a, a game slightly slowed down and get a lot more decisions right. Uh, because, and I actually think it would make a lot more better decisions because right now, what the situation you've got is you've got the VAR official, who's usually a junior ref or whatever, who does not want to overrule his mate, his colleague on the pitch because maybe next week the roles might be reversed. And if you overrule somebody, you're saying they got it wrong. You know, you're not calling them incompetent, but you're saying they, they made a mistake. Now, I think it would be far easier for them to say to the ref on the pitch, look, I think you need to see that again on the monitor. The referee can see it on the monitor. He can change his own decisions. I think it's more likely that a referee will see something again and change his own decision because he's making that change rather than someone else overruling I don't think they want to overrule him, so they won't. And I think that's a change that has to be made. And it's Mike Riley's fault for wanting to be contrary and wanting to be different and wanting to be out of step uh, with everybody else in the world. And until we uh, implement that, we're just going to keep having these uh, conversations, which is it's just getting boring now. Mm-hmm. It's getting a bit tiresome. Uh, guys, um, I'll tell you who did play well, and uh, this was borne out by the BBC website, who gave the, who changed their customary man of the match to men of the match and gave it to Ederson and Wayne Hennessy. Hennessy had a great performance, didn't he, Colin? And in fact, there was one um, wise quack crack on Twitter that was saying that uh, you normally only see Hennessy in the, in the, on the top shelf of some country bar. But um, here he comes and uh, he almost matched Ederson for some of the saves he made. Well, of course, he learned his trade at City, didn't he, Wayne Hennessy? So um, oh. that's where we start. That's where we started out as a young player. So um, yeah, obviously had a good grounding. Uh, yeah, he made a couple of fantastic saves himself, and um, as did Edison. I mean, um, but both of them made two really good saves, as we said. And um, uh, you know, had we got had we got a third, yeah, when it's two 0 up, there was always a danger. I don't think um, 
I don't recall too many, uh, apart from the two saves Edison made, I don't recall too many other um, dangerous episodes for us. But uh, you know, it's always the danger at 2-0, isn't it? They get one and, the, the, you know, the, the backs are up and, the, and they're going for it. And um, But Ed- Edison saved us from that. And, and you know, if we, we'd have got a third, then it'd been game, definitely been game over. So, um, yeah, you know, he did a... Uh, Hennessy covered himself in glory and I think that's to name them both as man of the match is probably pretty fair actually yeah would you agree with um, Ederson and Hennessy or Ederson as man of the match um, for this one Ray I think Ederson did better than Hennessy for me uh, I think Ederson's saves were were better and probably uh, can I use the words more crucial um, because as Colin said if they'd got the one goal um, we'd have been a bit jittery and we'd have been looking at that and thinking, how have we got into this position where we've been so comfortable for so long, missed a few good opportunities ourselves um, to be in this position of, you know, to be, you know, maybe with five minutes to go, only winning 2-1. Um, so, look, Hennessy did made some good saves. There's uh, no denying that. I just don't think it was as good as Edison. Um, I think some of the, on, on my channel anyway, I think the men of the match were split between Edison and David Silva, um, you know, keeping it in-house, keeping it at City, uh, rather than sharing it with the opposition. Yeah, David Silva has been directly involved in eight goals in his last seven league starts against Crystal Palace, so they wouldn't have enjoyed the sight of him. But um, another uh, prominent statistic that came out of this, or two of them actually, that's uh, Gabby Jay's 50th goal for Man City All Competitions. And he's been directly involved in 58 goals in his 64 starts across all competitions. Could he possibly be the heir apparent to Aguero, Colin? <laughs> or do we, or is the press right to be um, talking about this uh, young Argentinian Lautaro Martinez as the guy who should come in eventually and, and, uh, and replace Aguero? What do you think? Well, you always need two strikers, don't you? And and um, and I say, and I've always said this: uh, Aguero is matchless in many ways. One of the greatest strikers um, of his generation and of many generations, and uh, you probably can never be replaced. But I've always said, Gabby Jesus gives us something a little bit more in some ways because he gives us that pressing from the front. He's so much more involved in the game you see um Aguero you know we've lost the ball in advanced position and you'll see Aguero trotting back uh whereas Gabby Jesus is back there almost as a midfield auxiliary defensive midfielder he's fighting for the ball and again you know that that Kevin De Bruyne if you think back to the cup final that that third goal Kevin De Bruyne if Aguero had been on the field we would not have got that goal because Gabby Jesus fought so hard uh, for that ball just inside our half, three times he had a go at it. And I don't think Aguero would have been there. And I don't think Aguero would have quite have had the same desire to win the ball as uh, Gabby Jesus has. Gabby Jesus, of course, is not Aguero. I mean, that that's that's one thing, you know. But he scores, you know, he scores goals and he's, he's very reliable in a one-on-one. Uh, it, it really is the only block in this copybook was um, we should have, we, we absolutely should have had a third goal, Wayne Hennessy or not. Uh, failing to cross to Kevin De Bruyne, who had a tap in, and oh, that was yeah. really—you um, can just really feel quite... De Bruyne's frustration. He was going mental, and I guess anybody would have I mean, done. It was just so so uh, on, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine Kevin not a man to hide his emotions. I, I could imagine words were had at the uh, at the end over that. 
But I, I, I've said um, myself, I, 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 I point back to the Spurs game, if Kevin wanted to say anything. I point back to the Spurs game just before half-time. Winning 2-1, KDB's through on the right. Uh, can't remember, was it Sterling coming through in the middle? Um, so KDB's on the right-hand side of the box. And he leathers a shot, high, wide and handsome, when the correct ball was to pass it in and hope that Sterling would have a pretty much a tap-in. Uh, not as easy as this one. But it was, you know, we uh, and, and KDB was quite happy to take the shot. And I, I felt at the time it was because we had so much pressure. We were having so many chances. And it seemed inevitable um, that we were going to get loads more chances and score more goals in the second half. And it just didn't happen. Spurs walked away with an undeserved 2-2 draw. So KDB was guilty of it. And we have our favourites. And, and people will forget about some players and the mistakes they make and, and focus on others. And I think, you know, we all, as I said, we all have our favourites and we prefer, we will look at the positives in somebody and forget their negatives. But, you know, the the, the shoe fits up for on both ways. You know, Kev was let down by Gabby this time, but Kev's let us down with exactly the same um, in the past. And uh, uh, I just thought people should uh, be reminded of that. Well, guys, just before we go on to talk about events elsewhere that uh, impacted on the table and our future prospects, were there other um, any were there other uh, incidents or moments in this particular game that you'd like to comment about, or are we pretty are we are we pretty much sewn that one up? I can't think of anything I'd like to comment. The only thing I'd like to say, you know, obviously we're talking about VAR again this weekend. We're not the only ones, of course. Uh, it was a few games where uh, there were there were contentious decisions. It's interesting that in the NFL, where they have obviously the game stops and starts, they have millions of replays and, and, and almost um, VAR, as they use it, is a, an accepted part of the game. And even they're complaining about officialdom and the, some of the decisions being made. So um, it's not just us. Yeah, I mean, there is there is an illusion of um, objectivity about it, but at the end of the day, it's still a couple of guys making decisions based on what they see, that's for sure. Are not making decisions, or not making decisions, and uh, there's a there was a particularly glaring uh, penalty that uh, in another game that uh, we will go on to. But um, um, Ray, does that sew it up for you as far as this game's concerned? Yeah, pretty much. I don't think there's anything else really um, to to discuss. I think we've covered all the main points. That's it, and uh, we now have uh, 19 points and. Uh, Two points clear of Leicester and Chelsea. Um, now, guys, um, of course, what everyone was talking about, or they were pretending that they weren't interested in it, but there was the game Liverpool uh, against uh, Manchester United. And uh, if you weren't, if you didn't have a vested interest, you would think this is going to be a walkover. I mean, Liverpool have been like a machine so far this season, and United have been basically like a broken down machine. A lot of people were predicting a cricket score, but historically, if you look at these two games, I, there is this cliche about form going out the window, but um, Liverpool seem to be strangely subdued whenever the pressure's on and they have to play Man United, no matter how crap United are. Um, before this game, Colin, what result would you have wanted to see? Would you have, would you have, been, would you have been happy with a, with a draw or would you have wanted United to win? Uh, What I've been happy with is Old Trafford being struck by a meteorite. But 
or, or failing that, uh, a massive uh, earth hole to uh, hold to appear in the centre of the pitch and swallow up, you know, all twenty-two players on it. Um, but but given that was unlikely to happen, um, a draw I thought would probably be, well, you know, you, you've got you've got to look at self-interest, haven't you? As much as we don't, we never want United to win a game. You know, a, a United win would have been the best result for us. But a draw probably, um, you know, a Liverpool win. Would have been great fun for us as City fans vis-à-vis our hatred of United because it could potentially have left them in the bottom uh, three. In fact, it wouldn't have done. They would have been just outside on goal difference had they lost, as things turned out. And I said lost by a cricket score. So, but the best result for us, you know, put, putting any hatred of United aside, the best result for us was obviously a, a United win. But a draw, perhaps, is a nice little compromise. We, we catch up two points on Liverpool. And now, if we win all our games, we win the league, of course. Now, back in our hands. Back in our hands. Now, Ray, tell me this. How does this work? Liverpool, with the greatest um, goalkeeper in the world, the greatest centre-backs in the world, uh, the greatest defensive midfielder in the world, and the best front three in the world, uh, minus Salah, of course, who's been um, uh, was, was uh, sidelined through a bit of a knock. How on earth did they not beat the worst Man United team in 30 years? Well, it just shows that Liverpool um, can let the pressure get to them. They can still affect them. And this season, I, uh, you know, when people ask, have asked me, you know, can Liverpool win it? I say, I think they can. They can win the league, because partly because they've got that monkey off the back. You know, Europa League final, Champions League final, Carabao Cup finals, losing every single time. And now they finally won something. You can see a bit more of a swagger in their step um, and a more belief that this, this can be their year in the league. Um, but the game showed that, you know, uh, using different tactics, uh, United showed that Liverpool can be got at. Um, and it also showed that um, they, they haven't been firing on all cylinders this season, I don't think, but they've been getting the results by hook or by crook. But um, there's, there's still a, can I say a bit of nerves about them as well because you know it was a nervous finish to them when trying to get that uh, equalising goal and it just shows that you know if, if teams and I, I said this earlier on if teams have a go at City and at Liverpool then they have a chance if they just sit back and try and defend against City and Liverpool now you're most likely going to get beat and we won 30 games I think each of the or was it 32 each of the last two seasons we won a lot of games. And more than likely, if you defend against City, you'll get beat. If you defend against Liverpool and hope to hit them on the break, you'll get beat. You've got to t- throw, I won't say caution to the win, but you've got to play on the front foot and actually take a chance and have a go. And, and United did that because I think if United had just gone out and set the stall out to defend, they'd have got beat. And it was all in matter of, of how many. But by doing something different, uh, Liverpool weren't prepared for it. You bypass the midfield, and you immediately attack their defence by, you know, leathering long balls forward. And it works. So, um, yeah, so Liverpool can be got at and, and United got at them. Colin, w- would you agree with that as the, the most effective uh, method to, to, to beat Liverpool and would Pep be prepared to do it? Well, I don't I rightly said, as we said before we came uh, on air, um, Liverpool are set up to press from the front. That their, their forwards, their midfield are all set up to put that press on teams trying to play from the back. And United just didn't do that. United just leathered it forward. 
And, and basically, you're cutting out, as Ray said, you're cutting out Liverpool's main weapon, which is pressure. Uh, and you're also cutting out the impact that their midfield has. You know, their midfield isn't, isn't a... It, there's no Kevin De Bruyne or David Silva in that midfield, or Bernardo, or, or even a, a Gundogan. It's a workmanlike, hard-working, run around, kick anything that moves. I don't mean that quite literally, but, you know, they're snapping at people's heels. They're also defending the back four, which is why Liverpool got such a good defensive record. But, you know, in terms of if they can get the ball forward quickly, get behind the opposition defence, they they are usually fairly effective. If they can't, and we've seen this, I think if you look at the stats for games Liverpool have struggled in, they've had the majority, 60% or more of the possession in most of the, most, not all of those games. And they don't like being asked to create something. So United, actually, Pep won't, I'm sure Pep won't resort to leathering the ball over the heads of the Liverpool midfield from the back. But it, it does show how there is a way to beat them. And I think... What United then did was uh, certainly in the last half hour, maybe a bit longer than that, they just put 10 men behind the ball, Mourinho style, uh, and wouldn't come out at all. And Liverpool um, still found a way through when a couple of United defenders switched off a bit. But um, United, Liverpool don't like being asked to create something, particularly against a packed defence. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's why I was just wondering. It just seems um, <clears throat> to me, uh, Ray, that... Um, the tactics that are that have been proven to be very effective against Liverpool are 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 tactics that you just can't see Pep using, can you? Um, I think you you can you can actually see Pep using some longer balls coming from Edison. I think we've seen that in previous seasons where when teams have tried to press us by having four, five, even six men uh, trying to stop us play out from the back. And the passes, not just hopes. To we actually saw it against Palace as well, where Gabby Jesus or somebody would would come from the front and actually drop into the middle of the park where there was nobody to pick up that ball. And Edison's done it with with Aguero, uh, whoever's up front, whoever's out wide, and he'll ping it out to them when Sani was playing well, you know, um, um, nine months ago or whatever, and he'll do that. So Pep can do that. We can use that tactic against Liverpool. Um, and I, I think we probably will use that tactic against Liverpool, but not as often as Man United. Man United didn't have any other tactic. There's no way yeah. they were going to play uh, out from the back and, and, and get away with it. So, um, But no, no, I, I think we will do it from time to time against Liverpool. You've got to mix it up against Liverpool. I don't think you can play the same way um, because of their press. We've got to mix it up. And, and Edison's got to be hitting those wingers and... Um, whoever's playing up front. Well, what I think Pep might do, he might play, you know, assuming we've got a defence, he might play uh, Stones and Otamendi in defence or Stones and Fernandinho, or Fer, you know, two two players in defence. Then he'll perhaps play um, Gundogan and De Bruyne in midfield. Um, or he might play Fernandinho, sorry. Two defenders, Stones and Otamendi. Then he'll play Fernandinho in front of them. And then perhaps De Bruyne and Gundogan in midfield, because both of them can fall back, particularly Gundogan. Both of those can fall back into a number six type role. I don't think it's Gundogan's most effective role. But again, if you're looking at stopping Liverpool, if you're looking at kind of, um, in the same way the teams do it, do it to us, they, they constrain the space. If you're looking at doing that to Liverpool, then that, that would be, for me, the way of doing it. For me, <laughs> um, sorry, I'm just going to say, for me, I think the key is KDB. Um, 
which is a bit weird because last season we got by without KDB for most of the season and we were still magnificent. But I think this season um, we need him. Um, I think we really do need him. Uh, with, you know, now we lost Vincent Kompany. Um, De Bruyne's drive, um, as I said before, drive and determination, uh, will, he'll drag us forward. And I think that makes a huge difference uh, to the way we play. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if there's any chance that by the time the next Liverpool game comes around, I'm just trying to figure out when that is, guys. Is that not until the new year? Um, just looking Liverpool, down the list. November, isn't it? Well, November. November. We go there very soon, actually. Three weeks. Yeah, that's a shame. I was just wondering whether we would have had our Liverpool killer uh, back by then, because as you know, it's uh, Leroy Sané that has scored three times in four games. They hate him. I've listened to a few Liverpool podcasts uh, from time to time, and that's the man they fear. But uh, I think it might be a bit too soon for him. Anyway, guys, um, just before we started recording, um, to my immense satisfaction, um, Arsenal just got beat by Sheffield United, guys. Colin, did you catch that game at all? I did. I did watch the game, actually. It was interesting to see because um, Arsenal aren't very good on the road, of course. Um, you know, they've got this weakness away from home, particularly against uh, bigger clubs. And I did when I did my King of the Kipax column uh, preview of the season. I did predict Sheffield United would stay up, um, maybe not comfortably, but that I I thought they had more about them than either Norwich or Villa. Uh, although Villa seemed to be doing quite well, and uh, I think um, it, it was a, it was a little bit similar to the United uh, Liverpool game in, in to some respect. Sheffield Wednesday, took, uh, Sheffield United took the lead. And then they just put 10 men behind the ball. Uh, and Arsenal haven't quite got the creativity these days that they used to have. You know, when they had, uh, you know, some of the great players they had, you know, uh, Ramsey and, and um, players like that who could, you sometimes struggle to see what the strategy was at Arsenal, but you couldn't doubt they had some fabulous players. Mm. But, but, and, what, but um, what about this Nicolas Pepe that they bought for 70 million? What's going oh on with dear, that guy? Yes. Well, well let, let, let's be charitable and say it'll take him a little while to settle in. But that, uh, the, the, if, if you didn't see it, there was uh, a shotty miss where the ball came across the face of the goal. I think he only had the goalkeeper to beat and he took it. Um, the ball was coming across from his left. And what you've got to do there is take it on your, use your right foot to collect the ball and, and, and slow it down. But he tried to use his left foot and he missed it completely. And, of course, he, he sliced it horribly wide. I tell you what, Pepe Le Pew would do be, uh, better than uh, Nicholas Pepe at the moment. <laughs> uh, but I, I just think he looks nervous. He, I think he's got the skill. He's got these um, fabulous pieces, of, uh, you know, individual, uh, brilliant skill. Uh, but I just don't think he's settled. I, I think he's nervous as well. Um, but, look, it, it's... Tonight, you know, after the pod's finished, I'm going to go on to YouTube. I want a, I want a helping of fam and blood tonight on AFTV and uh, hear the calls for uh, Unai Emery out uh, from uh, my mate Claude. Uh, so it, I think I'll have a little bit of cheeky fun uh, for 10 or 15 minutes tonight. But it's, it's just that way that they've got this soft underbelly, especially away from home. Um, and I didn't watch the match. I was on the train. But it, you just get that feeling that, you know, they, they don't like it open and they don't like to get stuck in. <laughs> yeah, guys. And, yeah, uh, sorry, Colin. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's that dilettante Arsenal, isn't it? That uh, Yeah, they've won one game away from home so far this season. Uh, last season, how did they do? 
didn't win many. You know, won seven when we were winning 14. You know, even Watford, teams like Watford, Wolves, West Ham were winning six games away from home. Crystal Palace won nine on the road. United won nine on the road. So, you know, they've got this bit of a um, a blind spot, haven't they? Uh, a bit like Everton seem to have. Um, they just cannot play away from home in well, the same way they play at home. Well, guys, shouldn't we allow ourselves just a little bit of uh, schadenfreude with all of this talk from the Liverpool's support about how they were going to match the 18 uh, wins in a row. And uh, oh my gosh, and one of my, I think one of the most common little memes that came up on Twitter was just um, um, a picture of City, and then the little comment underneath was 18 wins in a row ain't for everybody. <laughs> I enjoyed it anyway. But guys, now it was interesting because if Arsenal had won, as I had predicted that they would, they would have been just a point behind us. But now uh, we've got a two point cushion between the next two below us, and that's Leicester and Chelsea. And so I was wondering, um, uh, Colin, is it not perhaps Leicester and to a lesser degree Chelsea that City should maybe be looking over their shoulders at? Well, I mean, we know what happened with Leicester last season, don't we? That game was a hell of a game, and Brendan Rodgers was only just um, in the job. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I did think Leicester, I, I did think, again, in my King of the Kipak column, I predicted Leicester would take a top six slot from United. But what, what's becoming apparent is they've got a real chance of a top four spot. Now, now let's not get too carried away. We're only less than a quarter of the way through the season, but and we... Uh, I seem to remember under Sven, we were in a similarly uh, elevated position um, come Christmas uh, 2007. Uh, and then we slipped away to you know mid-table. So there's a long way to go yet. But, you know, Brendan Rodgers is a good coach. He's got a particularly good midfield. Um, I think his weakness is defensively. I don't think he can organise a defence. Um, but I don't. Maguire's doesn't. Maguire leaving doesn't seem to have affected them. And I spoke to a Leicester fan uh, just before the season. Uh, it's part of a radio broadcast I did, uh, who said that um, Maguire wasn't as good for Leicester as he was for England. So he said we, uh, you know, didn't think they'd miss him, and, and that seemed to be. <laughs> it's quite quite funny, isn't it? You know, he's left Leicester to go to the glory of Man United, and he now he's now eleven point eleven places. And uh, seven seven points behind his old club. Well, the, the funny thing is, now that you men- mentioned that, uh, Maguire left Leicester uh, for United, and, Mag- and Leicester are now third. Aaron Wan-Bissaka left Crystal Palace for United, and Palace are now sixth. <laughs> and uh, our, our friend was it Daniel? Was it Daniel James? Is his name? Yeah, um, the Swan- Swansea guy. He left Swansea for United, and I think Swansea. Someone said they're third in the Championship. So. All these players have left uh, their clubs for, for for the glory of Man United. They're all doing. They're all clubs that haven't missed them, and United have got these new players in, and they're they're, they're struggling. Um, the, the only, I mean, I'm looking at the table now, and I, I said at the start of the season I thought Chelsea would get in the top four, even after they got beat by United, because I saw I felt there was a lot there, and it was like who scored that first goal would win, and Chelsea missed a lot of chances. Um, you know, I'm looking at Arsenal. I mean, they're only four points behind us, and there it's set away from it. it, it, it I look at the table; it's ridiculous. We've got a goal difference of 20, and they've got one plus one, and they're four points behind. But they need—they've got, as Colin said, they've got a huge problem um, with with these uh, away away games. So I, I personally think they need a they need a special consultant to, uh, because 
Unai Emery's not doing it. They need somebody. They need to draft somebody in uh, on a temporary basis to help them with their away form. Uh, and I think someone like uh, John You're, Terry or Ryan Giggs or Yuri would be Geller. Ideal. What about Yuri Geller? You just bought my joke. Well, uh, well yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Both are very good at playing away from home, aren't they? Thank, yes. thank you very much. Bubble. <laughs> I'm here all week. <laughs> Guys, this is it. Wild to get that one, but I got there in the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Leicester are impressive. Guys, if you think of that midfield of Tielemans and uh, Madison, and they've got um, the, apparently the guy Soyon Su, the one who came in to <clears throat> basically replace uh, Maguire, is better than Maguire. And. And of course, they've still got uh, Vardy up front. Looking at Chelsea, now they've got uh, a very impressive young set. They've got uh, Hudson-Odoi, Tammy Abraham. Um, they've got uh, a lot of uh, good young players. Mason Mount. Ruben Loftus-Cheek to come back as well. Mason Mount, you said Ruben Loftus-Cheek to come back. Um, they're looking exciting, Chelsea, actually. They've got a lot of pace. A lot of pace, a lot of power in their team. Uh huh. Yeah, I can. Manchester United. I just, I just it's the first time I've actually noticed it until now. They're in fourteenth. My goodness. I, I, I guess the only cause that for concern that this might give is that there's um there's a lot of talk about Max Allegri coming in, guys. What what do you think about that? Um, is that is that any kind of a possibility? Because that's he's a he's a serial winner. That guy. Yeah, but what's he got to win with? I mean, you know, he's not he's not going to turn Phil Jones into Maldini, is he? And uh... <laughs> how, how is he going to play? Is he going to play by defending? You know, United are not the greatest at defending. I can't see him playing the Italian way and looking to um, you know win um, by by scoring the odd goal. I think for United, what's really interesting is. They've got a, a, a real six-pointer coming up next week because they're playing away at Norwich. And Norwich are only three points behind. OK, if Norwich win, uh, they won't leapfrog over United unless they can you know, beat them by six clear goals, which, you know, even for the poor United, I can't see that happening. But I, I wish for Timo Pukki's sake and my fantasy football side, um, side <laughs> sake, he scores a few goals. But it's, it's you know, I mean, if they win, they, they draw level with United. And United... Um, I've got to be looking over their shoulders. And they, they're coming up, I'm just looking at their games. It's very interesting. They've got two away games. They've got Norwich away and Bournemouth away. And, you know, who knows? Bournemouth could do something uh, against United. And then you've got a couple of games later, Sheffield United away. By the end of um, November, <laughs> you know, fingers crossed, United could be... Uh, in the bottom three are just hovering one or two places above it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's just there's the stuff of dreams. The stuff of dreams. dreams. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, guys, uh, just before we bring the pod to an end, let's look forward to our next couple of games. Who have we got next then, uh, Colin? We've got uh, Aston Villa, haven't we, on um, Saturday? Well, oh, we've got Atalanta, of course. Yeah, sorry. I should have known I'm going to it. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, Villa next in the league, which uh, should be interesting. But Atalanta, uh, who would describe—I saw them described as playing in a crazy way. So uh, be interesting to see uh, what they do and how we cope with it. But obviously, if we win that one, we're we're pretty well through, aren't we? I think. Yeah, I yeah. think they laboured to a three-three in their last game. Villa, on the other hand, well, they're kind of tasty. They've got Grealish in uh, in midfield, who's getting lots of. Uh, praise and pundits, but I think it's a it's a long string of City home games, so it's looking pretty good that way, isn't it? Well, we've got yeah, four, I think we've got four games on the bounce, so it's quite nice. 
um, to be able to stay in Manchester for the next few weeks to watch games. So, uh, guys, unless you have anything else, I think we might uh, we might wrap it up. Is there anything um, beyond City out on the Twitter sphere or in football matters in general that have uh, uh, caused your ears to prick up with um, curiosity? Um, no, yeah. nothing. Nothing's jumping out at me. Yeah, I'm just seeing the um, the ongoing battle between uh, Liverpool and their sponsors. I thought that was quite funny. Um, I don't know if you've been following that, Colin, but it's getting yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty, yeah. It's becoming pretty cantankerous between them now, isn't it? Excellent. Yeah, and they were supposed to have been mates, weren't they? Because um, just to explain for anyone who doesn't realise what's going on, Liverpool obviously their kit supplier was. Um, this New Balance company, who are a Boston company like their like their owners, so presumably there was some sort of uh, relationship there. And Liverpool was their first big uh, soccer client, football client. They were mainly big in things like lacrosse and hockey. So, so um, the Liverpool contract was a big breakthrough for them. Uh, and I'm sure there was nothing dodgy about um, you know getting the Liverpool contract because, you know, they're the mates with the um, Liverpool owner, John Henry and, and his crew. I, I'm sure that was all above board. And But it's an interesting, was an interesting article on this. In the contract, they supposedly have the right to match any bid, any other bid, any higher bid for Liverpool's kit, uh, to be Liverpool's kit supply. It's a very contentious area. So uh, Nike are coming with a with an offer, and New Balance are taking Liverpool to court, saying they've matched Nike's offer and have a right to be, so should be, continuing to be the kit supplier when the when the contract ends. Liverpool dispute this, obviously, and uh, there's a whole legal argument around how many times can you get to, uh, you know, how does this clause apply? Can it even apply? What what are the conditions? For, for matching an offer. So obviously this looks like it's going to be tested in court, which will be interesting. Very, it'll be very good fun. I mean, it's not like Liverpool, uh, a club formed purely as a money-making exercise uh, to go uh, chasing more money. It's all about the money to them, isn't it? You know, it's quite ironic that Liverpool fans and uh, pundits and whatever have been having digs at City, but they were the first Real that I, I, I can um, that I can remember. First club formed simply as a money making exercise. You know, whereas in those in the old days, lots of clubs were formed as to, to keep um, men um, off the streets and uh, maybe a bit healthier, or to do with the church. Liverpool were formed just to make money, and uh, it looks like you know in the hundred and odd years of their uh, existence, that's all they're uh, they're still that's all they're about is making money. Mm-hmm. Guys, just a few uh, little one-liners of comic value to to give you a laugh and uh, only elicit maybe a one-word or a one-sentence response from you. Uh, here's one for Ray. Ray from this the Twitter account City Chief. Here's the announcement. Arsenal think there is a good investment to be made with Isco in January, but Manchester City see Isco as the ideal replacement for the departing David Silva. I'm now, <laughs> I'm now gouging my eyes out, uh, you know, and and throwing throwing them at my at my fridge. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you know, how stupid do they think football fans are? They can keep mentioning Isco's name, you know. Yes, when it first started, we were all excited, and you know who's going to come up with a uh, with a witty chant using D I S E O Ottawan. You know, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, you guys uh, out there know the song. 
and we're all excited. He did look a good player. It's not happening. It's never happening. And you know, come back to me in 20 years' time when we're doing these pods, and his name will still be linked with City. So it's a load of rubbish. Every single window, every single window. How about this one for you, Colin Savage? This is from an account called um, FT Sports News. Uh, that I, I do notice they've only got 40 Twitter. Um, followers. It says, breaking. Manchester City have signed Kylian Mbappe from PSG for 180 million. Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> I, think I, think, I think we know why well they've got 40 followers. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, there we go, guys. We'll just leave it there and uh, we'll be back with you again after the game against Atalanta. And so until then, I guess what we should do is express gratitude as always to your two uh, other members of the Bolt from the Blue podcast. Let's start off with uh, Ray. Ray, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it's been a fantastic uh, hour and a half uh, chatting with you guys, uh, all things to do with City and football. Uh, I've enjoyed it tremendously and uh, going to look forward to the Atlanta game tomorrow night. Okay, and also we've had your City Matters Committee uh, member and the King of, King of the Kipux uh, man, uh, Colin Savage. Colin, thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. And we should thank you for hosting. I mean, we, you know, we get the plaudits. I think you should get some of the plaudits as well for being an excellent host. Oh, yeah, thank what, you so he, much. He, he rode roughshod over <laughs> my joke. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the one joke, or semi good joke I had. And he rode roughshod over it. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm just so fast with that brain of mine. I just, I saw it coming a mile off. Sorry to spoil you, that for you. You, 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 you destroyed <laughs> me, joke. At least Colin got the joke. You didn't even get the joke. It was over your head, mate. Well, who knows? Anyway. Maybe I'll edit it and make you come out looking good. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, that'll do us. And uh, as we always say, have one on us and up the blues. Manchester City is still alive here. Balotelli, 